because to be honest, being an entrepreneur is really hard. And some days are awesome and I'm on a high and I love talking about Rojo and it makes me jazzed. And then other days I'm like sitting in my car like, oh my God, what am I doing? This is crazy. Welcome to the Charting Her Course podcast, brought to you by the Pacific Coast Business Times. This podcast will give an inside look at women who own and run small businesses on California's Central Coast. I'm your host, Veronica Kuzmuk, and I'm so excited to put a spotlight on these fascinating businesses in San Luis Obispo, Santa Barbara, and Ventura counties. This podcast would not be possible without our sponsor, Bank of America. More from them a little later. Kaylee Hernandez is the founder and CEO of Rojo Goods. Rojo works with local artisans across Kenya to produce ethically sourced products such as sandals, handbags, and jewelry. Rojo's mission is to create opportunities for their artisans through providing jobs that pay well above industry standards and ensuring that their children have access to quality education. Listen as Kaylee talks about how a trip to a local market led her to start her own business and how working closely with women artisans shaped Rojo's commitment to female economic development. Please enjoy this talk with Kaylee Hernandez. Hello, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I know. I know you have a very busy travel schedule, so I'm <laughs> really happy that you could have a little time to come and talk today. So thank you. Of course. Thank you. So I think I want to start out with if you could just explain um, your company and what you guys produce. Sure. So my company is called Rojo, and what we do is we import products that are handmade by artisans in Kenya. So we started out with 42 artisans. We're now working with over 400, which is huge, 97% of which are women, which is hugely important to me. But we sell these products here in the U.S. through boutiques, pop-up events, and directly to consumers online. So our products include beaded leather sandals for women, accessories like handbags, and jewelry as well. Awesome. So obviously I want to get into like everything about Rojo, but um, I like to take it back a little bit in the beginning and have you talk about what your career path was leading up to owning your own business. So full disclosure, I'm pretty young. I'm 26. So when I was in college, I was always interested in poverty alleviation. So I was an undergrad at Northwestern University in Chicago, and there they have a great African studies department. So kind of one thing led to another, and I ended up studying abroad in Africa in Uganda. And I was working for a community-based organization. So it was sort of like a nonprofit, but a smaller nonprofit in a rural village in Uganda. And that was my first introduction to international development work. And so I was working with mostly women, but men as well, in these rural villages and creating savings groups um, to incentivize savings. That was kind of my first introduction into everything um, Africa and poverty alleviation. And I just knew I was hooked. Following graduation, I was working in Kenya as well as Tanzania for the International Rescue Committee. So there I was working on refugee programming as well as child labor programming across the two countries. So it was a really great opportunity just to kind of get my feet wet into the international development space, into the international nonprofit space. And at the end of it, I knew I was ready to kind of be out of it. And I really 
really was interested in looking at the intersection of business and impact and what that looked like. And so it was through all of my travels in East Africa that Rojo even got started. And it was because I had these contacts over there and I kept coming across these beautiful products that were all handmade by these artisans. And these people just didn't have access to quality markets in order to market their goods. And so that's kind of how I see my role at Rojo. That's amazing. So you just met all these artisans yourself. And then how do you get the ball rolling from there? Like, how do you start? I first came across our beaded leather sandals when I was working in a rural village in Uganda, the one I mentioned before. And, you know, these rural villages, there wasn't much to do. So on the weekends, I would travel into larger cities and explore what amazing tourism Uganda has to offer. And so I was walking through a craft market. I remember turning and looking over my shoulder and something beautiful and sparkling caught my eye and it was these shoes and I was hooked and you know it's kind of funny my first words when I was a kid was were new shoes and so it's like (laughs) totally come full circle it's that's super weird so I saw these beautiful sandals and became obsessed with finding the source of them and so it was through my continued travels to Uganda and then eventually to Kenya and Tanzania where I started to map out the East Africa sandal industry and really say okay Where do the best sandals come from? Who's making them? What's the story of the people making the shoes? So for me, it took about a year of kind of mapping this out and speaking to different entrepreneurs who were selling these products to to find who would eventually become Rojo's suppliers. So, you know, you start doing all this work and then how do you progress to getting funding to, to really start? We very much have always been um, a very scrappy organization, I should say, especially because no one's going to be crazy enough to go out and fund, you know, a 20-something-year-old with no business experience who just has this idea. So what we ended up doing was once we initially found our sandal suppliers and once we really connected with that artisan group. We had them ship over a number of samples to us, and we would host home shows here in the States for friends, primarily, and friends of friends, and it kind of grew from there. So that's kind of how the project initially got started, although we also received some initial startup funds from an organization called the Resolution Project, and they connect with young, mostly college-aged entrepreneurs who have a business that has some level of social impact. And, And for us, social impact is really central to everything that we do. So how did you come up with the name Rojo? Rojo itself, it's a Swahili word that means spirit or kindness. And we say that's what we're all about. Beautiful. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, so you mentioned earlier, too, that you work with over 97% women artisans, which is amazing. What was the process like to create that workforce and that environment? I've been really fortunate in that I've come across these incredible artisan groups who are already creating beautiful products and I'm just there to kind of fine tool what's already being done, ensure that quality is up to snuff for, you know, Western standards. And my role with this group has really been to translate what sells well in the U.S. These women are already selling their products in a national park, but for me, I'm taking their products, redesigning them to kind of fit well with what would sell here and and selling them. So that's interesting because I would think that there would be a lot of trust involved on their part with you. And is it just because you were already there with the other programs and you built, like you said, all these relationships that you were able to say, like, I will help you with your international sales? Is that how that worked out? Yeah, definitely. So really what it is, it ultimately comes down to relationships because I've had a number of people come to me lately saying, look, I really want to support this group in Guatemala or this group in India or whatever. And for me, I I hear that, but I also urge people to really understand the context in which they're working because if you don't understand that, you're 
you might not always do right by the groups that you're working with. There are different cultural contexts and expectations. Um, and you could also lose money in, in the process as well. There's just different ways that you do business and different ways that relationships manifest. So for me, I mean, once I saw the sandals initially when I was in Uganda and I went on the quest to find the best quality sandal manufacturers, I was told by a number of shopkeepers in the area, okay, there are two really quality people who are making shoes in Uganda, and they're both Kenyan, and they're both named Lydia, funnily enough. And then they said, we prefer Fat Lydia's products. Okay, okay. okay. And okay, (laughs) asterisks being that... in East Africa, fat is refreshingly not a negative label. It's just that to be fat means you can afford enough food to feed yourself. And so it's actually more of a compliment than anything. It's very different. Like I mentioned, there's cultural contexts that right. are just very different. <laughs> it's a positive over there, though. <laughs> it okay. Is. It is. It is. <laughs> um, so, so I went on the hunt for this fat Lydia, and it took me several months to finally find her and, and get a face-to-face meeting. But at our meeting, you know, I sat down with her, and I explained my idea of Rojo. And, you know, it took me forever to find this woman. And I'm sure I came in, I was like sweaty and overwhelmed. (laughs) And I was just like, what am I doing here? Oh, my gosh. But I think she saw my passion behind this project. And then as we've progressed over the years, we've ordered place larger and larger orders, which I think gives us legitimacy. And, you know, it's it's more than that. I think it's that she has seen that I've demonstrated a serious commitment to her and her artisans. So whenever I travel back to Kenya and I'm there once to twice a year, usually more, we sit down and we have community meetings with all of the artisans and their families. And we say, okay, how can we better support you? What do you need in order to do your jobs better? And what are you being paid now? Is that enough? And on and on. So right now with our sandal artisans, they're being paid 50% higher than the industry standard for the work that they're doing. And that's because they're producing some of the top quality sandals in East Africa, and they deserve to be celebrated for that and rewarded for that. And in addition to that, we also send our artisans' children to quality schools in the area. The reason behind that being we're really committed to breaking the cycle of poverty in both the short and long term. And when I went to our artisans and said, what does this community need? They said, okay, well, terrorism's a threat, and this is a threat, and you know, infrastructure is terrible. And I said, okay, I can't fix those problems today yet. Right. Um, But here's what we can do. What are the biggest contributors to poverty in this area? And they said, you know, education, the fact that children don't have access to quality education is a serious prohibitor, or I should say, it's something that ensures that people are stuck in these cycles of poverty. And so we said, okay, let's start to invest in your children and ensure that they have more opportunities than you had. So what would you say these women have taught you so far? These women have taught me resilience in a way that I've never seen. One of the groups I mentioned we work with are these 300 Maasai women who live in the south of Kenya. So they live on the base of a national park. So essentially there's Amboseli National Park and they live on kind of the equivalent of like a Native American reservation. And there's no fences or anything between the national park and where they're living. So, you know, they really ensure that they're not walking to the the source of water at a certain time every day because that's when the elephants walk by. And you have to make sure that, you know, you don't get in the way of an elephant and the water. And, and they just have the most incredible relationship with these animals. And the way that they interact with the land is just so totally different to things here. I mean... No one owns things in the way they own them here. And it's just to see people so at peace living so simply is really, really incredibly beautiful. And I think also to see the resilience and see what 
you know, what are real problems in everyday life puts things into perspective. And it's not I'm not here to glorify poverty because poverty is really gross. And, you know, seeing the way people suffer is disgusting. But but just to say that, you know, I complain that, oh, man, I cracked the screen on my iPhone. And these people have to worry that, like, you know, they're having these serious medical issues and the closest doctor is 20 miles away and there's no way to get there other than just walk. I think it puts things into perspective and having met these women and privileged enough to for them to share aspects of their life with me, it means that I now have a duty to share that with other people and share their craft and their art with other people. And now a word from our sponsor. Bank of America asked Central Coast businesses, what would you like the power to do? Listening to your answer is how we learn about what matters most and help you achieve your goals. That's why we've lent over a half billion dollars to Ventura, Santa Barbara, and San Luis Obispo counties, small, mid-sized, and commercial businesses. Because we don't just work here, we live here. I also, when I was looking, um, doing some research online, I saw there was a couple terms that came up slow fashion and ethical fashion. So could you maybe talk about what these terms mean and then how they relate to Rojo? Sure. So slow fashion is in direct contrast to what would be called fast fashion. And with slow fashion, it's about slower production schedules um, and ideally zero waste in what you're doing. It's ensuring that the products you're making are made ethically. The people who are making your products are being paid fairly for the work that they're doing. And this is in direct contrast to fast fashion, which is emphasizing products going from the catwalk to in a store as quickly as possible and ensuring that products are are extremely cheap and that they're flying off the racks and that it doesn't matter about the people who make the products and it doesn't matter about the environmental costs associated with these products being sold. And so for us, we very much identify with this idea of slow fashion. It's about investing in your products. Yes, something may cost a little bit more money, but the idea is that it'll last you 10 times longer than some t-shirt you buy for $5. And so we really focus heavily on this model because our products, to be completely honest, I mean, they're not they're not going to compete with like a Forever 21 in terms of prices, but that's not really the point of our products. Our products are meant to last you years and we guarantee all of our sandals for a year at least. Although to be honest, my original pair of sandals is still going on seven years strong. Wow. I still have them. So we're just we're just really here to ensure that products are seen as investments. It just seems so much nicer to just have simplicity in in what you buy and and what you wear. And rather than having twenty different black t shirts, why not have one and ensure that it matches with everything that you wear and that it's versatile. Um, so that also kind of ties into this idea of ethical fashion and ethical fashion can kind of mean whatever you want. It means different things to different people. And, and these terms kind of do get used a little interchangeably at times, which can be confusing. But the idea of ethical fashion is that in some line of the supply chain, things have been ethically produced. So that could mean that um, the products themselves are not tested on animals or um, the products themselves are vegan leather and so therefore you're not relying on cowhide. Or it could mean like for us that when you buy one of our products that the people who are making the products are being paid fairly for the work that they're, they're doing and that they're working in a safe environment and that especially for us it's really important because this isn't 
that commonplace in Kenya. We don't work with any artisans under the age of 18. It sounds like a no-brainer here, but but over there, that's very unusual. What would you say Rojo stands for? We say Rojo is committed to three things, and that's our beautiful products, our ethical work, and our economic empowerment. So in terms of our beautiful products, we have created these products to last, and we view them as works of art. And we want to ensure that our consumers see them in that light. Um, all of the materials that go into our products are sourced as locally as possible, when, whenever possible. And um, we want to just ensure that these products aren't just going to sit in your closet, that you're going to wear them every day. You're going to tell a story. There is a story behind these products. There are hands and people, real life people with real stories and real problems and beauty behind them. Um, And now in terms of ethical products and economic empowerment, we, I'm sorry, ethical work and economic empowerment, we pay our artisans 50% higher than the industry standard, like I mentioned. And then As I also mentioned, we send our kids to quality private schools in the area, the idea being that we're really working to break the cycle of poverty in the short and long term. Now, in terms of economic empowerment, that's really for us about creating opportunities in a place that there are few. It's about helping people help themselves. We're not into handouts or giving things out or, you know, placing my idea of what these people should be doing with their money or giving them free shoes because I don't know that they need free shoes. Maybe they need to invest their added income in medical expenses or in a new goat to support their family in a new way or a new business venture. I mean, it's just, it's ultimately up to our artisans to decide what they need most. I really love that because it sounds like you guys take a really serious approach to actually listening to the needs of people that you're working with and not just assuming like you're saying or just offering, you know, certain perks or whatever with the work, but actually taking into consideration like what their needs really are. It's so true. I mean, don't get me wrong. I've totally made mistakes throughout this whole process. But, you know, I learned at least initially from my time when I was working in Uganda that, you know, there's a lot that's not said And especially as an outsider, it's really your job to listen. So I have two kind of quick stories that tie into this. So the first of which is this idea when I was living in Uganda, we were working with these communities and we always had these community meetings where we would meet once a week to talk about the status of these projects and and on and on. And so we we met this one community and we knew that, you know, we we would schedule a meeting for noon and it would start at two. And that's just how it was. We got there at one. We were waited till 2. We waited till 3. By the time it was 3.30, we were, well, I was fuming. I was like, come on, we're really working so hard in this community to, like, help. And I don't understand why anyone else isn't investing in what we're doing. And it just means that people just don't don't get it and on and on. And I just had a fit in my head. And, you know, it turned out later that there was a significant person in the community who had died and everyone was at the funeral for this person and paying their respects to the family. And... Then I got extremely humbled because it was this idea of, oh, my gosh, well, it's just that I didn't know that this was happening. But it's also not anyone's job in the community to have told me that's what was going on. And so it's just important to realize that you are working with the needs of this community first. Um, the second story I kind of want to talk about was when I founded Rojo, I had this great idea where, you know, OK, we're we're going to pay our artisans well or whatever. But I just have this great idea where we're going to create a vocational school, because when I did research on the area where our sandals are being produced, there are unemployment rates upwards of 40 percent. And that's 
that's even higher for women and other marginalized groups. So I said, okay, well, let's create this vocational school where we teach people how to bead really well and how to create shoes in a way where we can eventually hire some of these trainees into Rojo through the workshop and then others can go get jobs elsewhere and they now know this marketable skill and it's amazing. I like patted myself on the back and thought it was brilliant. And when I took this idea to our artisans, I I got laughed out of the building and it was because everyone said, look, we don't need more trainings. We need jobs. We need quality jobs and we need opportunities in this area. And where these shoes are made, it's beautiful. Like I mentioned, it's on the coast, white sand beaches. The water temperature is like 80 degrees. It's like a bathtub. It's gorgeous. But beyond that, like I mentioned, unemployment rates are crazy high. And that's because there are terrorist threats in the area and terrorist cells. So all of a sudden, what used to be a booming tourism industry, there just wasn't that anymore. And it was at no fault of anyone living there. So there was there are a number of well-trained people in this community, people who used to work in hotels, people who worked as drivers and on and on, who just don't have opportunities. So they said, okay, we don't need a vocational school. There's no opportunities to do anything with that. And so that's when we created the the education fund as a source of giving instead to ensure that, you know, our artisans' children have more educational opportunities and that might be able to get them farther. So we're definitely not perfect, but I am committed to ensuring that we do right by them. And this kind of pairs with that. But as the founder and the CEO, what type of leadership do you hope to implement? I hope to implement a leadership style where people feel free to come to me with issues and concerns, especially in a, in these communities where I'm working. You can't have a style where you are kind of hammering down on everyone. It has to be a collective idea and effort. And so I really hope that my style is about unity and bringing people together and ensuring that even marginalized voices or or quieter voices are heard and not always the loud ones and that we take everything into consideration. What's something that you want people to consider when they're making fashion choices or, you know, retail choices? I just would like people to consider where the products come from. And at times that's really difficult because there's not a lot of transparency in the fashion industry to kind of see where things do come from. But if something is extremely cheap, I think there has to be a conversation in one's own head. Why is something that cheap? What does that mean for the people who are actually making these products and is this product that I'm about to purchase, is it going to last me? Is it worth it for me to have made this decision knowing that it could have had devastating effects on someone halfway across the world? And so what do you see for the future of Rojo? Rojo, I see developing into a hub of ethical fashion. And we slowly are becoming that. As I mentioned, we started with sandals. And now look at us. We have jewelry. We have bags. We have a number of accessories as well, which is so cool to see this growth and development. But I don't want to only be in Kenya. I'd like I'd like to see us sourcing products from all over. That being said, I need partners who have connections in those areas where we're working. I can't just go into India and expect, I mean, there's beautiful products coming out of this area, but I really want to ensure that my commitment to these artisans and future artisans is really there. I want to talk a little bit about mentorship too. Who are your mentors? I am so 
shameless when it comes to asking for help, I have to be honest. And having started this, you know, relatively young, I guess there was so much that I just didn't know that I didn't know. And I think I was pretty good about acknowledging that and asking for a lot of help. So right now, I have to thank Women's Economic Ventures has been hugely impactful. I took a business class through them. I'm getting continued mentorship through them. And through that connection, I met my current mastermind group. Um, I am by far, I got like adopted into this group and I am by far the like smallest, least successful in the group. And I feel totally intimidated all the time. But these women, it's not about that to these women. They are there to rise. You know, we're all there to rise each other up and support one another. And, um, you know, one's in uh, legal. So I go to her with any questions I have about that. One's, you know, a CPA. So you can go to her with any questions about that. Another one. So everyone's just in such different industries. And it's just about developing a community of empowered women and raising each other up. And they have just been such a blessing in my life. And I would not be where I am today. Because to be honest, being an entrepreneur is really hard. And some days are awesome. And I'm on a high and I love talking about Rojo and it makes me jazzed. And then other days I'm like sitting in my car like, oh my God, what am I doing? This is crazy. So it's just about having this community of people behind me. And to be honest, even our consumers, there are some consumers who are just our cheerleaders through and through. And that is like what gets me through too, is just seeing that what we're doing is impactful to obviously our artisans in Kenya, but also like our consumers love our products and are sharing them with other people and telling the story and there's something pretty cool about that too. So they mentor me in another way. They've like taught me how to cheerlead because I'm not naturally like a cheerleader or someone who wants to share all these exciting things, but they are the ones who kind of do it for me and have taught me, no, it's awesome. What you're doing is really cool and you have to tell people about it. In all the times I've been listening to people talk about how they started their businesses, obviously like there's a lot of unknowns and you know, a lot of ups and downs and paired with that, a lot of fears of like, are we going to make it? You know, what's what's going to be around door number two? So how would you say you overcome the fears? I don't think I've overcome them yet, to be honest. I think it's something I always work on. And every day it's something else that I'm worried about and some other fire I'm putting out and something to be worried about and on and on. I feel like I have so many more wrinkles than when I started this. But but to be honest, I think that is kind of a blessing in disguise about this business is I have grown so much as a person and have challenged myself every day because I'm put in a number of different roles I'm not always comfortable in, but I've had to learn and I've had to learn to adapt. And the perfectionist in me is disappointed a lot of the time because things can't always be perfect and you just always have to be moving forward as a business. So I work on it. I'll let you know when I figure it out. That's How about good. that? I think that's really good advice, though. <laughs> it's about, you know, maybe you're not overcoming all the fears because who can all the time, but working through it. Mm -hmm. Just showing up every day. So. And those mentors really help too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the key is mentorship, everyone. Do you hear that? <laughs> um, so what's been a standout moment so far? Well, many, to be <laughs> honest. <laughs> I mean, I like... I, so we won the Think Global Award through you guys, and it was hugely inspiring and just out motivating. And I presented our idea at the Clinton Foundation to Chelsea Clinton a few months back, which was really cool and nerve wracking. Yeah, that's <laughs> impressive, though. Yeah, I mean, I think what's so cool about this is because adding a layer of impact into our business has made it a little more complicated. Like financially, there's added costs and traveling back and forth to Kenya. There's there's a lot more to bite off. Um, then maybe if I were just doing this and, 
doing this to get rich, which I definitely am not (laughs) at this point. Um, But I just think that so many more people resonate with what we're doing and want to support and are interested in the stories that we have to tell. And so it's just been it's been a blast to be able to share that with people. What is a typical workday like for you? Um, None. I was in today. Let's see. I'm I'm on the board of NABO, National Association of Women Business Owners. So today consisted of a meeting for NABO, and then it consisted of a meeting with the mayor about an event coming up, and then it consisted of on and on. And then I was on the phone with people in Kenya for an hour trying to figure out how to get this order in on time, and then it consisted of. So to be honest, it's no day is the same which is amazing. And it's also a little crazy. Some days that means waking up at four in the morning to make sure that you're, you know, talking to the right people in Kenya on time because the time change is crazy. And and other days that means you're like, I feel like there are no fires to put out and that feels weird. What should I be doing right now? So there's no such thing as a normal day. What would you say is your main motivation? What drives you? It's my artisans every single day. I mean, things are hard sometimes and It feels like I'm always pushing a rock up a hill, and some days it feels like the rock is a little smaller than other days. Um, But when when I really get discouraged, I'd have to say I go back to the stories of our artisans. And when I tell people about what we're doing and see the fact that it's clicking and that what we're doing is really resonating, we are going to do seriously big things. I think so, too. It's really inspiring. Looking back at the start of this journey three years ago, knowing everything you've been through now, what would you go back and tell yourself? To be honest, I think something I'm working on now and will probably continue to always be working on is just this idea of not being so much of a perfectionist and just knowing that things are going to fall into place. Um, I, I think I, I would so much rather have a guarantee of everything and still do to this day. But I think back then, especially just kind of know, look, it's going to be fine. And you just have to when you panic about things, it doesn't help anything. And just sometimes you got to do a little yoga, take a deep breath, get a massage, do something. Self-care would be brilliant. Um, And just know that things are going to work out because you have a huge community of people behind you who are going to support you. And you just have to be willing to ask for help and and know that you don't always have to be perfect at everything. So I guess lastly, tell me how p- can people find out more about Roho and how can they get more involved? So we are online. So our website is Roho, R-O-H-O, goods.com. And then we're also on social media, um, Instagram and Facebook, Roho at Roho Goods for both of those. You can um, shoot me an email at any time. I want to hear people's ideas. If people want to get involved, we're always looking for for some sort of collaboration. So please, I would love to hear from all of you. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here today. <laughs> I love you. I love everything about what you're doing. And I hope people, when they hear this, will go to your site and actually look up your products and see how they can get involved. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was Charting Her Course, a Pacific Coast Business Times podcast. The Pacific Coast Business Times is the weekly business journal for the Central Coast with digital and print editions, as well as can't-miss events. For more on the Business Times and to subscribe, please visit our website at packbiztimes.com. A huge thank you again to our sponsor, Bank of America. We're so appreciative of their support. Bank of America is committed to responsible growth for the clients and communities it serves by listening as they answer the question, 
what would you like the power to do? If you enjoyed this podcast, and I sure hope you did, please share with your colleagues, family, friends, and anyone else who might listen. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you stream podcasts. Please also subscribe, rate, and review. For more info on this podcast, please visit packbiztimes.com under Charting Her Course. We are also on Instagram at Charting Her Course. Give us a follow. We'd love to hear suggestions on future guests as well. This podcast is developed and produced by Linda LeBrock and me, Veronica Kuzmuk. Associate producer, editor, and provider of emotional support, all done by Viana Mabonik. Our gorgeous artwork was done by Corey Iniguez of Dandelion Designs. Check out her website at dandeliondesigns.com. Our very cool theme music was created by Nicholas LeBrock. Thank you, Nicholas. And a special thanks to Impact Hub in downtown Santa Barbara, where this podcast is recorded. Lastly, we're all out charting our own courses in business and in life. So while we're out there, let's wave and say hi to each other. We're in this together.